Bibles, I'd have you turn to Matthew chapter 22. We are finally out of Matthew chapter 21. <laughs> and we are now moving into chapter 22. Uh, Vince wants to preach on Matthew chapter 25. We thought that that would probably take place about eight or nine months from now. Uh, <laughs> the way we're just flying through Matthew. Um, but in the final verses of Matthew 21, or Matthew 21, we saw how the Pharisees, the religious leaders, were attacking Jesus and questioning his authority and questioning how he could do these things. And then uh, in Matthew, at the end of Matthew 21, he, he answers their, their question. And he answers them with a trilogy of, of uh, parables. And the first one is in verse 28 to 32 of chapter 21. And it's a parable about two sons. Then the second one is a parable about a vineyard and that was leased out to tenant farmers. And then this is the last one. And it's in chapter 22, verses 1 through 14. But each of the parables is alike in the fact that the message is about judgment. It's about judging the nation of Israel. The other thing that I find interesting is if you just looked at those parables, each one becomes more implausible. Each one becomes more confrontational. Each one becomes more, seems to be more unrealistic. So the first one is just two sons. They're supposed to go out to work, and one says no, and the other one says yes. The one who says yes never goes. The one who said no, you know, eventually repented and went. Anybody could understand that, and most of us would have been able to experience that at some time or another. The next one is about these tenant farmers who are leasing this uh, vineyard and they think that eventually it'll be theirs, that they don't have to own anything, I mean, do anything, but the property will be theirs. Well, that's sort of a mentality that everybody can understand, that I don't really have to work hard, but I deserve all kinds of blessings. I deserve this, I deserve that because I've worked for it. And so we have that mentality. But then this one becomes even crazier when it comes to understanding it. Um, but all of them show this judgment against uh, the Pharisees, the religious leaders. Um, so they have consistently rejected Jesus, and now God is showing how they are going to be rejected by God. And that's really the essence of the three parables. Uh, the table is turned, and there are parables of judgment. So go ahead and read Matthew chapter 22, verses 1 through 14 at your tables. Uh, you can have one person read it, or you can just read it silently to yourselves.
Father, we thank you for your word today, and we pray that you just continue to open our hearts and our minds to the fullness of that of the your truth, and that we may live it, that we may experience this truth, and that we may just make it a part of our life, that we may live it to your glory, to your honor, and to the benefit of others. And we ask these things in the name of Jesus' name. Amen. This is really the most shocking of all the parables. And sometimes we may miss the irony of it because we're just not living in that culture. We're not connected to it. Or because we've heard it so many times or we've heard similar things so many times that it's lost its significance or its meaning. But in this parable, there are two things that are really evident. Number one is the evil and the judgment of God. Not, not the evil, but the wickedness of the people and the judgment of God on them. But at the same time, you have the love and the patience of Jesus, or God, showing through through all this. Um, it's a pursuing love. It's a per love that continues to reach into these people's lives. Um, also, um, this parable divides nicely just into three sections. The first section verses 1 through 7, focuses on the issues of the rejected invitation. The king has sent out an invitation, and the people have rejected it. The second, verses 8 and 10, focuses on a brand new guest list. Okay, that guest list has rejected it. We'll write out a new guest list and invite those people. And then verses 11 through 14, focuses on the wedding crasher. Um, and so you have those three sections there. Uh, so in verses 1 through 7, notice first that this section, or this occasion, is about a wedding feast. And that's significant, folks. Jesus is inviting us to a feast, to a wedding feast. And it's important for us to understand that this is the way our Lord characterized God's invitation to us. He's saying, I want you to come and have life. And I want you to have it to the fullest. I want you to celebrate. I want it to, my relationship with you will be one of joy, of hope, of happiness. Uh, it's a never-ending uh, uh, happiness. His invitation is never to unhappiness or sorrow or drudgery or darkness or fear or death. His invitation is to life. It's not an invitation to a funeral. It's an invitation to joy. It's not an invitation to a formal state dinner, but to a relaxed, cheerful, joyful occasion. It's an invitation, in other words, to life. And that's what Jesus is always inviting us to. He's inviting us into that. Um, and I don't think we fully understand the Gospels until we understand what the invitation really is. And I think down deep, that's what people want. They want that kind of an invitation. But at the same time, there's a rejection. A phrase in Paul's letter to the Romans, for the kingdom of God does not mean food and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's what God is calling us to, a life of peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. 
Um, so it's important for us to understand when God gives us an invitation, he's inviting us to discover life. Life as it really is, or maybe for us, life as it can be if we fully accept and acknowledge what Christ has for us. Notice also the nature of the call. It's an invitation. It's not a summons from the draft board to report. It's not a summons to report for jury duty. It's an invitation that recognizes that a person has the freedom to receive it. It's not a command performance. And so when God offers us this gift of life in Jesus Christ, he does not threaten us. He just says, come. There's a feast made out for you. There's a party. There's joy. There's everything. And when we hear it from that perspective, it just makes no sense that anybody would reject that. You mean I could have this freedom and joy and peace and happiness and fulfillment and life and it's never ending or I can continue on with my drudgery? Okay, I think I'll continue on with my drudgery. And that's basically what they're saying. All these people were invited and they said, you mean I get all this? I've already been invited to this? No, thank you. I'd rather stay in my misery. I'd rather continue to do what I want to do. Um, so this was an invitation. So when they rejected and refused it, they were refusing the very thing that they wanted most. If you talk to people, what do you want? They do surveys all the time. Every year, there's another Pew Research survey that people want joy, they want peace, they want happiness. And then Jesus says, here it is. And they go, but I don't want it that way. I want it my way. And as they continue to do it their way, they continue to find themselves without the peace, without the joy. So this invitation goes out. A king's son, that's a royal son. He's going to be married. And he sends out an invitation to his subjects to come to the wedding feast. And that original list had to have some pretty important people uh, on that list. And as the invitation goes out, and surprisingly, everyone turns the king down. Now, you've got to understand, this isn't just a bunch of Democrats being invited to the White House and they're saying, no, thank you. Or the previous... That's not a bunch of Republicans being invited to the White House and saying, no, thank you. This is the king. There's no, there's no party lines. This is the king. And this is mind-boggling to the people who are hearing this. Um, there's got to be just gasps in the crowd. How can you say no to the king? Uh, the fact that they wouldn't go would be inconceivable to the people who were listening to this story. And when you recognize that, you're beginning to see the impact of what this parable is about. And you begin to see what the impact is for us today. Because if we were sharing this same story, and you're talking to a friend, and they're struggling in their marriage, they're struggling with their life, they're struggling with their family, they're struggling with their career, they're struggling with their emotional wellness, any of those things, and you say, Jesus promises you life. 
He promises you God. He promises everything. And they go, no, I think I'd just rather stay in my misery. I'd rather watch my marriage fall, fail. I'd rather watch my kids continue to get in trouble. I'd rather watch my career go south. I'd rather watch my finances be eliminated. I'd rather just do all those things. It's, it's inconceivable from, a, from our perspective how a person would continue to do that. But that's exactly what's happening. Um, no, they're thinking nobody in their right mind would do that. And for several reasons. One, you would spurn the honor of the king that he was giving you. King says, you're special. I'd like you to come to this wedding feast. And you recognize that he says you're special. And he says, nah, but I don't want to go. Two, the food was good. And back then, a feast for two weeks, food, party, yeah, okay. I don't even like the king, but I'm going. Um, and then third, uh, you don't mess with a Middle Eastern monarch. Because if you mess with them and they don't like you, you're dead. So you just say, okay, I'm going. I'm going. Um, but they don't. So what is the king's response? He's kind. He's patient. And he says, okay, I will send out more servants, and I will inform them of how the party's ready, the meal's ready. I've, you know, served the best food there is. And so, come on. But in verse 5, it says, they made light of it. No big deal. I think I'll just go back to my farm, go back to my work, you know, just go home. No big deal if I don't go to the banquet. Same thing happens today. No big deal. It's no big deal that I don't go to the banquet. It's no big deal that I don't go to Christ. It's no big, no, no big deal that I don't fellowship with other believers. These things are just no big deal. Uh, <clears throat> but that, they would be going, the people would be listening to this. How could they be so indifferent to this? How could they be so, they're out of their minds to be going through this. So this story is impossible to believe. No one would ever do this. Um, and the Lord is just setting them up. Now, if you think that's bad so far, then take a look at verse 6. And the rest took the servants, treated them shamefully, and murdered them. Now, you say, now this is totally ridiculous. That they killed the guys who came to invite them to the feast. They killed the Christians who came to invite them to the feast. They killed the prophets they killed the messengers who came to invite them to the feast. But the same thing has been happening for thousands of years. People continue to do it. So what does this mean? The story is clear. The kingdom of heaven is the sphere of God's rule by salvation. That's, that's where Jesus is. Who is the king? God. Who is his son? Jesus Christ. And the idea of a great banquet is a Jewish idea. That that came right out of the Jewish tradition. The Jews, the Jews said that when the Messiah comes, God will put on a banquet like there has never been a banquet before. 
It will be a celebration. It will be a feast with the Messiah. So God is calling his people to his son. He's calling people to come to his kingdom and honor his son. And who are the invited guests? Who are these people that are called in verse 3 and called in verse 4? The ones who have already been bidden? That's the Jewish nation. That's Israel. Those are the Pharisees. These are the ones who've already been invited. These are the ones who are the chosen people. And he says, now come and be with your Messiah. And they say, no, thank you. They're saying, here's my son, here's my kingdom. Come and honor my son. And he sends out his messengers. And what do they do? Treating him with indifference and hostility. Not much different than what's going on today and what has gone on throughout the years. There's nothing here that should be surprising other than when you take a look at it, it just makes no sense. It makes no sense. Um, so they murdered them. They killed John the Baptist. They killed John the Baptist. They killed Jesus Christ. They killed his messengers. Now I mentioned that the king was loving and patient. And he is, to a point. His patience has a limit. His patience has an end. And when they have killed his messenger, he responds with anger. And it's justified. For unrighteousness has just killed righteousness. And it's time to put an end to that. So in verse 7, we see the king sending out his servants and burning down the city. Jesus is telling a colossal tale here. He's saying, Israel, you had every chance. You had every chance. And you've rejected me. You've killed my messengers. You've killed my prophets. And judgment is coming. Forty years later, the nation of Israel, the temple was destroyed. Uh, under the rule of Titus, there was well over a million Jews that were killed as they leveled the temple. And that lasted for 600 years. So that you just see that. So Jesus has given us a picture here of, of judgment to come. And in that judgment that, that Jesus is speaking about in this passage, there are no victims. There are no victims. There are only people who made choices. And they choose to be friends of God or they chose to be enemies of God. And if they chose to be enemies of God, they suffered those consequences. The choices are ours. The consequences we can't change. And so that, we have that. And now look at verses 8 and 10. We see a new guest list. And it's a picture of the call of the Gentiles. Matthew from the beginning to the end is saying that not only was the kingdom for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles. And here in verses 8 through 10, he shows, that us, he shows us the calling of the Gentile. But he also reminds us of something that's very important. And that is that the gospel offer is free. Because what does he say about those that didn't come? That had been called and didn't go in verse 8. He says they're not worthy. What makes a person worthy? What makes a person worthy there? Accept the invitation. 
It has nothing to do with morality. It has nothing to do with rank and privilege. It has nothing to do with race or color. It has nothing to do with social class. It has nothing to do with anything other than accepting the invitation. And because they chose not to accept the invitation, they're not worthy. See, worthiness is just tied to the invitation. Um, we've seen the invitation rejected, the rejecter's punishment, and now the new guests are invited. Go, therefore, into the highways. Bring in everybody. And when it comes to calling people into the kingdom, there is no, there is no discriminating. God is calling everybody, bad and good. And the thing that makes them worthy is not their inherent goodness or badness, but their willingness to accept the invitation. The invitation has been sent. What are we going to do with the invitation? So the invitation goes out literally, without distinction, uh, where there are all kinds, the honorable and the dishonorable, the up and outers and the down and outers. Um, the invitation goes out to anyone who will hear, anyone who wants to live, um, again, we see the hall filled. And then this is where sort of the shocking part comes. And then in verse 12 through 14, we see what happens at the wedding, at, to the wedding crashers. The high point of the feast would be when the king showed up with his son. We're all there, the king shows up, and he's working the crowd. He's looking at the people. And then he looks at one and he says, hey, Friend, what are you doing here? You're not wearing a robe. And there's all kinds of conjecture as why he didn't have a robe from the fact that he, you know, people say, well, he didn't have time to go home or he didn't have anything. That doesn't say anything in there because the way he used the word not in there is... The first time he uses not, you don't have a robe, it's just a statement of fact. The other way the word used not in the Greek was an act of rebellion. And so he looks at him and he goes, well, you don't have a robe. But the second way he says, and you did it not because you couldn't get one, it's because you chose not to wear one. Now. What was the robe of righteousness? What is this wedding robe? It's the robe of righteousness. You see it in Isaiah 61.10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. Rejoice, joyful. For he has clothed me with the garment of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. See, it's our relationship with Christ that gives us that robe of righteousness. And so here you have this wedding crasher who's in there, but he has never had a change in his heart. There's been no relational change. There's been no surrender. There's no been acknowledgement that Jesus is king. And so he's just there. What a picture of the church today. I've been working with a company and they've been trying to change the culture of the company. 
And it's been very interesting because as they've been working over the last year to change the leadership culture of the company, you begin to see how some of the people really get it. They're really buying into it. Now when they're all together, verbally, they all agree. And they all give the kumbayas. Yeah, this is wonderful. But as soon as they get into their back into their own workspaces, you'll see this group of people that is still focusing on the changing culture and this group that isn't. They're still living their own agenda. And I see it played out in companies. I see it played out in families. I see it played out in churches. There's this group of people that come in and they go, yes. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Savior. Jesus, and I've surrendered everything to Christ. And there's this other group, um, which I've always called the inside outsiders, who are inside the church, but outside that vital relationship with Jesus Christ. And this is who they're saying. said, you know, you're here, but you're a fraud. You've never put on Christ's robe of righteousness. You're still holding on to your own robe of self-sufficiency. You're still holding on to your own robe of pride. And until you let go of that and put on the robe of righteousness that Christ provides for you, you don't belong at the wedding feast. You don't belong at the wedding feast. So what does he do? Binds them and throws them out. Well, when Jesus comes back for his church, do you think he's not going to do the same thing? That he wants a pure church. Um, now, the other, the other thing that I find interesting, did you notice how he uses friend both times? Friend. You know? He calls him friend. That there's no hate in this. There's no judgment. It's just friend. I've given you every opportunity. Why do you why do you keep on fighting me? And because you keep on doing that, I'm going to have to cast you out. Where else does he use the same term friend? Any thoughts? The night of his betrayal, when Judas comes. He goes, friend, why have you come? Do what you need to do and get it over with. I just find it so amazing that in the midst of betrayals, the midst of rejections, the midst of everything else, Jesus says, friend, you've made a choice. And this is the choice you have to live with. These are the consequences. Life or judgment? Mercy Grace, love, peace, or your own self-misery. Um, and then he says, for he says, many are called, but few are chosen. And again, there's a lot of debate what that means, but literally it says, many are called, but few are called out. And it's sort of like many are called into the community, but you know, many will gather, but few are called out to fully live that. There are many who are willing to come without a wedding garment. They're at the scene of the wedding, in the presence of the fellowship of the saints with the Son, but they themselves do not actually enter in to that vital relationship. 
Instead, they cling to themselves. They cling to their pride. They cling to their own agenda. They cling to their way of doing things. And Sam said, no. It's all about Christ. And I'm going to let him clothe me with his righteousness instead of me trying to clothe myself with my own righteousness. As we come to the communion table, this to me seemed like one of the best verses or scriptures for the communion table. Because when we come to the communion table, that's what we're asked to do. We're asked really to just reflect on what is our relationship. Do we really experience the love, the joy, the peace, the sense of well-being? Have we been able to let go of our past, let God forgive us our past? Or do we continue to hold on to things that just continue to rob us of the peace that Christ promises us? And have we ever really totally surrendered our life to allow Christ to be the center? Um, when we come to the communion table, that's what that reminds us of, that Christ gave his life for us.